Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The 21st chapter begins with a powerful comment about Paul's meeting with the Ephesian leaders, which we covered in last week's sermon as they, remember they stood together in Miletus, the Ephesian leaders had come to meet him there, and they said their goodbyes, and it was a very, uh, a very sad time. But the 21st chapter begins with this powerful comment about saying that they had prayed together, they had hugged, they had wept, and then Luke says, we had to tear ourselves away from them. The parting was obviously a very emotional thing, very traumatic. So they finally got on the ship, and there was a layover in Tyre before they were able to make their way all the way to, uh, to finish their journey, that is. But they, they laid over in Tyre where the, the, the ship unloaded some cargo, and it gave them a few days there. So Paul once again met with some believers in that little town and stayed with them for exactly seven days. And then at this point, Scripture tells us something that's a little bit baffling. It says, we landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo and we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them for seven days. And notice this next sentence. Through the Spirit... They urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you've been tracking along with this, you should already know it has been through the Spirit that Paul has been told to go. And now Luke says that through the Spirit, they told him, don't go. What are you supposed to do with that? What was the Spirit really saying? So it's a little bit confusing. And I think this is one of those things that is beneficial for us. Because in my notes, I've titled this portion of the sermon, this point, are you in the spirit or in the flesh? We can be sure of one thing. The spirit did not contradict himself. He did not give contradictory instructions. He did not tell at one time go and another time do not go. So we've got a problem here. So how do we resolve this conflict? It's probably more reasonable to assume that Paul was not mistaken 
in understanding that the Spirit told him to go. And it's, it's very possible that the Spirit had borne witness to these people that Paul was going to go and needed to go. But somewhere in that mix, the flesh took over. Has anybody here ever seen a mixture of the spirit and the flesh? <laughs> yeah, we have. And it's kind of difficult sometimes to figure out where one ended and the other began. But you were quite certain that it wasn't all of the spirit. And so that's what we have here is through the Spirit, they had been made to know what Paul's mission was, but in the flesh, they didn't like what they saw. So the flesh rose up, and they said, in view of this revelation, that you have to go to Jerusalem, and it's not going to be pretty, the flesh says, would you consider maybe not going? We recommend you don't go. Would you please consider not going? The flesh gets in there and interferes with the Spirit and the leading of the Lord. I've seen the mixture of the flesh and the Spirit in many different ways in my lifetime in the church. It does happen today. People with the best of intentions being more focused on the concerns for Paul and his safety and his well-being than they were supporting Paul in following the leading of the Spirit. And that's really not hard to understand the conflict. They cared very, very much about his well-being. And if they could possibly talk him out of it, they were going to but they could not because Paul was thoroughly convinced of the will of God. I would suppose that family would, would do the same thing, realize that God's calling is maybe on their child. Just to use an example. And still at the same time, try and talk them out of it. Somebody says, you know, I feel like God is calling me to go on the mission field. And you know how difficult mission work can be. And maybe the parent's saying, I wish you wouldn't go. Now, it, is, is the parent really, really sincerely trying to fight against God's will? Not really. They're being a parent. They, they care. They don't want their child to endure those hardships. They know what lies ahead for them. So the flesh is rising up a little bit. And that's not to say that I am faulting these people who cared very much about Paul. But it is a case where sometimes our will is in conflict with God's will. So once again, Paul has to leave friends behind who were not as convinced as he was about the wisdom of what he was doing. And then we go to uh, another town, Caesarea. 
after spending one day in Ptolemais and making contact with believers there, Paul proceeded to Caesarea and spent a few days with somebody called Philip, the evangelist. And Luke backs up a little bit and reminds us of who Philip is. We probably all know, but nevertheless, Paul, uh, Luke makes sure we understand this is the same Philip you've already been introduced to. And he gives us some information about Philip, four facts about this situation, three of which concern Philip personally, and then a fourth one that we'll cover. First of all, this was the Philip the Evangelist. He was one of the seven. Now, if you don't know what that's code for, then you have to go back and read the story because whenever the there was a problem with the widows being properly taken care of. Uh, the Hebraic widows were not being taken care of like the, the Grecian widows. And the apostles said, well, let's find seven men, seven deacons, seven people full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and let them sort this out and make sure that all the widows are treated equally. So they chose seven men. Philip! One of the seven. So now we're being assured this is the same Philip we know. He's the evangelist under whom the great revival broke out in Samaria. He's one of the seven deacons. The third bit of information that we don't know to this point is that Philip had happened to have four unmarried daughters who were all prophets, or if we want to use the gender specific word prophetesses I just find it harder to say prophetesses so if I say prophets is that okay with you and some scholars think that the use of the word unmarried implies in that culture that they were probably younger than 16 years old the, the word virgins they were virgins. They were probably younger than 16 years old and obviously unmarried. So they were young girls. And if there are four, unless he had quadruplets, they were not all 16. So you got stair-step girls here. Maybe 12, 13, 14, 15, or 13, 14, 15, 16, something like that. You got them. And they're all prophets. This is interesting. We're glad that this scripture is in there because it satisfies for us one of the con controversies that we deal with in Christianity. And that is, what business does a female have doing ministry? And I don't know what your religious background is, but you don't have to go too far to find a church somewhere that frowns on women being pastors or evangelists. They believe many times like Paul had written in his letters that let the women remain silent in church. Except it's okay for them to teach Sunday school and do all the work the men don't want to do. 
we have some powerful characters, leaders uh, in Christianity today. Uh, one is John Piper, who is a very popular and powerful voice in Christianity. John MacArthur, another very prominent voice. And both of them just very recently have led a public charge against women in ministry. Very adamantly, they should not be in ministry. And I've seen comments associated with this controversy that is going on from just the general people who are chiming in to agree with Piper and agree with MacArthur or disagree with him. But those who are against women being in ministry have said some very vile things, even to the point of saying it's demonic for women to be in ministry. It's sin for women to be in ministry. It's wrong. It should not be for women to be in ministry. But I go back to the fact that Philip had four daughters who were not yet of marrying age who were already being used by the Holy Spirit to speak prophetically into the work of the kingdom and to people. God using those who are willing to be submitted and used by him. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. And we go back to the prophecy of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. In the last days I will pour out my spirit on all males. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Young men shall prophesy and old men shall dream dreams. And on my handmaids <laughs> and my servants, old and young, male and female, servants, leaders, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And they'll prophesy. And here they were, blessed to have four daughters operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of us would be blessed with children who grew up to operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't that just set your fields on fire? <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, uh, Ann and I are watching the grandkids while Derek and Jessica are gallivanting around Destin, Florida. So we were talking the other night with the oldest, Zoe, and I just want to share this with you, okay? She was just having general conversation with us, and she's saying she really can't hardly wait until her dad moves on from being the worship leader so she can be the worship leader. <laughs> she thinks that's her inroad. She says, you just can't go out to some church somewhere. I've got to have an inroad. That's a, that's a political approach, you know. I got ties there. I'm the heir apparent. And she said this, 
I really feel God is calling me into the ministry. Woo, man! Now, we didn't spend any time coaching them to say stuff like that. She's not parroting anything. I see God working on a young person's heart who has a passion to do something for him. Now, I don't know how it's going to flesh out. All I know is there is an open and willing spirit there to say, God, I just want to be used of you. And I don't know that there's any sensation any more fabulous, any more exciting than to hear your children stand up one day and say, I feel God is calling me too. Fill in the blank. I want to see, I mean, we've got a good crop of kids coming along here in West Side. And... These are, they're, they're, going to, they're going to grow, they're going to mature, they're, they're going to have, they're going to make decisions in life. And out of these, I'm personally, as a pastor, I am praying, God, call kids out of this crop into your service. Call some missionaries. Some that have a heart to want to serve. They don't have a heart to want to make $100,000 a year. They don't have a heart to want to have a career. They, don't have, they want to serve God somehow. And they feel a compassion when they pick up a magazine and see the lost in third world countries that the Spirit smite them. And they say, I want to go there. I want to do that. Speak to our young people. Speak to our children. Grow them up to have a compassion for the lost and the dying and have a passion for serving you. And let them be filled with the Spirit and let them prophesy and let them have let the gifts of the Spirit working through them. It's the future of the church. If this doesn't happen to our youth, you might as well lock the doors one of these days. We've got to have them have a passion and a fire for serving God. Bless Philip for these three girls, these four girls that he had. The fourth point is not about Philip. The fourth point is about while they were staying with Philip and admiring his beautiful, spirit-filled family. There's, there's this prophet that comes. We've already met him, Agabus. He was a few chapters back when he prophesied about this great famine that is going to come on Judea. And he inspired the churches who believed in his report to take up an offering and to be prepared for what is coming so that the famine would not catch them unprepared. And here, a little bit later in the book of Acts, here comes Agabus again. He just pops up once in a while with his word from the Lord. So they're at Philip's house. Agabus comes. And he comes to Paul and he takes Paul's belt. And Agabus ties, it says it ties his hands. And it's, it's unclear whether he tied Paul's hands or his own hands. But it, it appears as though Agabus tied his, took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and bound himself up. And there in this, in this position, then he prophesied, Paul, it's not going to be easy for you. From here on out, it was an illustrated prophecy. 
the Holy Spirit says. As Agabus was standing there bound up for illustration, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Not all prophecies are fun. And Agabus comes out and reaffirms to Paul the problem he faces when he goes to Jerusalem. Be prepared. Paul had to have some kind of fortitude, some kind of commitment to have all these reminders of what he's about to walk into and still walk into it. I would hate to have two or three messages from the Lord telling me it's coming you're about to go into the lion's den. This is not going to be easy. This is going to hurt. And every place you go, there's another prophecy how bad it's going to be. It makes you want to sit down and kind of rethink whether you're called or not. And Paul certainly had a choice. I mean, he could disobey the Lord and say, I didn't get into it for this. But he was faithful to his calling. calling. And, you know, I, I, I'm faithful to my calling by and large because I don't have a clue what's going to happen to me tomorrow. I can't say that I'm faithful because I know for a fact the trouble that lies ahead for me tomorrow. I can't say it from that perspective. I hope that I would be, but I am faithful because I keep thinking and hoping for the best. Even when it's been so hard, I couldn't hardly figure out a way forward. I went forward because I thought, surely, it can't get any worse than this. And you go forward. But Paul's looking at worse days ahead, and he continues. The only trustworthy lesson we can learn from this is how important it is to know God's voice and how he speaks to us. And knowing God's voice and leading is not an easy thing. People quite often mistake their own desires for the will of God. Paul had this relationship with God that was deeper than the typical Christian has today. It's not to say we can't have that relationship with God that Paul had. It's just to say that typically we don't find that in people. Paul's conviction that God was leading him to return to Jerusalem was confirmed by Agabus, this trusted prophet. And you know, sometimes we need confirmation from the Lord just to keep us going ahead. This is, this is what God wants us to do. You know, we might, we might think... Nobody knows the will of God for our lives as well as we do. But at the same time, it's hard to know for sure what God is calling us and telling us to do. That's why I said it's so important for us to learn to know the voice and the leading of God. Because we can think we know what God is telling us until we realize how much trouble it's going to cause us. And then all of a sudden, well, maybe God's not calling us to do that after all. My wife and I went down to 
Robertsdale, Alabama. It was down a tiny community very close to Mobile, Alabama. And our superintendent had sent us down there and said, they're looking for a pastor. Go down and check that church out. And we did and preached for them a Sunday and sat down and talked with the board. And the board was doing their questions, their interview with us. And they, they said, uh, tell us about, you know, your feeling that God is calling you to this church. And I said, God didn't call me to this church. He said, wait a minute. Every resume we've got here is from people who said God called them to this church. And I said, well, that's what I'm talking about. He said, everybody says God called them to this church. I'm trying to find God's will here. I didn't come down here to tell you God called me to this church. I'm trying to discover his will. And we, you and I praying together are going to have to try and figure this out. Is this where God is leading us? You know, it's, it's odd when you get a dozen resumes and every one of them says, God told me I'm going to be your next pastor. Somebody's not hearing from God here. But it's important to know the voice of God. Because when you have people that will contradict what you're saying or doubt what you're saying or try and persuade you away from what you're saying when you have the confidence like Paul did you can talk all you want but I know that I know that I know what God told me you've got to be firm in that and then Paul finally makes his way to Jerusalem now I don't know if you listen to talk radio. I don't know if any of you listen to Rush Limbaugh or not, but he's been on since the 1980s. And anybody who has ever listened to Rush Limbaugh knows that he talks about rugged individualism. Now, isn't that a beautiful phrase? Rugged individualism. Just kind of makes you swell up with pride and dignity. And he's preached rugged individualism for all these years on his radio program. And it's gotten to the point where we believe that's almost our religion. Rugged individualism. And rugged individualism as it applies to the nation, it applies to politics, it applies to Americanism, it applies to our government, it, apply, it applies to us as citizens, has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. Christianity is anything but rugged individualism. Now it may work at another level, but it has nothing to do with the themes of being a church, being a congregation, being a member of the kingdom. We as Christians are not rugged individualists. The followers of Jesus were not taught to be rugged individualists. Don't confuse Christianity and the community with being rugged individualism. One is a 
uh, the rules of democracy, uh, the rules of capitalism, or the rules of socialism, or the rules of libertarianism, or the rules of communism. But we live by the rules of Jesus Christ set forth and documented in Christianity. So when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he gives this report about the marvelous work God is doing among the Gentiles and his friends are so happy to hear what God is doing among the Gentiles. And they rejoice with him and then they say, by the way, we've got a problem here in Jerusalem. I just thought we'd better let you know. We have a lot of converts Jewish brothers who are converts to Christianity who are still hung up on the law. And they have suspicions about you preaching against obedience to the law of Moses and, and dismissing that because it's still very important to them. They were what we would call, the modern day term would be, uh, messianic Jews, Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they don't let go of their Judaism. So that's our term today, messianic Jews. Let's use that for these people. Here's all these messianic Jews still trying to live by the law. And they said, they're, they're not happy with you. And if, if you don't win them over, and befriend them and get them on board with you, you're going to have problems here in Jerusalem. You've got to have your Christian brothers and sisters on board with you. Let me read in verse 20, talking about the report that Paul had given. When they heard this, they praised God. And they said, you see, brother, how many thousands, read this, thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. See, Paul was not zealous for the law. He wrote very clearly in, in, in Romans, he wrote very clearly in Galatians how that was irrelevant to the new covenant. That the old law was bondage. And this would come later on in his life as he fleshed out his theology about this. But certainly that's where he's coming from at this stage in his life. So they're not on the same page at all. They're all believers in Jesus Christ, but you got thousands who are still clinging to the law, and they're very suspicious of Paul not supporting the law. Now he's got a problem. What's he going to do? They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. They've already got a plan. They're going to share their plan. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved, and everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but you yourself are living in obedience to the law. He was not living in obedience to the law, but they wanted him to go through this to make them think he was. Well, wasn't this deceptive? No, what he was doing here, and he, was, he agreed to it, is he was prioritizing what was important. He was picking his battles, okay? 
So if he would be willing to do this, which even though he was not one that was preaching you had to keep the law, he was not one that was preaching you have to follow Moses' teaching, he was, he was not one that was preaching that you must be circumcised. See, some of this stuff they said, they think you believe that. And Paul's saying, that, that's right, I do. But they said, well, let, we've got a problem here. So what are we going to do? And they said, if you go through this ceremony, at least they will realize that you're not opposed to doing this, even though you personally may not think we have to practice it, are you willing to at least make this concession and it will appease them? So Paul said, sure. That I started off this point by saying, we have had rugged individualism drilled into us to the point where sometimes we don't feel like we have, we should have to sacrifice our rights to get along in the Christian community. We might stand there and say, I don't have to do that. I'm at liberty. I've been set free. I have a right to live like this. I don't, you cannot do that to me. But Paul surrendered all of that to say, if that's all it takes to get these people to support me, I'll be glad to do that. So he did. He went through the ceremony with them. They shaved their heads. He paid for it. He was involved in it. The Jews came along and said, well, he must not be the enemy of the law like we thought that he was. Well, Paul can deal with that later. That's a theological issue. Paul can deal with that later. Right now, here in Jerusalem, he has to get thousands on his side because in just a little bit there's going to be a bunch of unconverted Jews that are going to seize Paul and take him and start persecuting him and beating him and trying to kill him. He needs some friends. And so he prioritized. These are my Christian brothers and sisters. We have theological disagreements, but right now is not the time to argue theology. Right now is the time to find our common bond in Jesus Christ. See, there's nothing about rugged individualism here. There's community here. It's how can we get along here. Do you know how many churches have been split over rugged individualism? Over somebody giving, getting their heels dug in so hard over something as silly as the music. There's nothing community-minded about that. And we can get so hung up on things that don't matter. And it divides the church, and we're missing the fact that we're bound together by our faith in Jesus Christ. I had a young couple in our church Several years back, I was so thrilled to see them at least attending church. They needed a lot of discipling. The young man was loaded down with some rather bizarre piercings all over his face. Uh, but he was welcome here. He had actually gotten to the point being happy here that he said I would I would like to be a part of the usher team now that conjured up some real interesting images in my mind because at that time we had ushers that they were required to, to wear suits and I mean we were fancy dancy 
And so you got all these suited ushers and you got this guy that, that looks like a pincushion and he's taking your money. So we talked about it. And the question was put to me, he wants to be an usher. What should we do? I said, train him. Get him a plate. Let him be a part of this. And we were incorporating. We were welcoming. We were bringing him in. These other things can be dealt with later. Right now, we're trying to form a community. We can disciple as we go. So I said, let's, let's get you in discipleship class. And we just had our first discipleship class this morning. So those who are in there know what I took this young man through. Had another couple in my church. They'd been Christians for many years and they wanted to transfer their membership from another church to this church. I said, sure, we'd be glad to do it. I just asked, would you, would you come and be a part of my discipleship class if you've never been discipled? And they said, sure. So they came, and here sits this, this uh, couple that's been Christian for I don't know how long, and here sits this young man and his wife, and uh, they're obviously uh, a bit different in their appearance than the rest of the people in the class, but it's okay. Until, until this, this other couple uh, wanted, to, wanted to get on the subject of tattoos and flipped over to the, to the Old Testament and, and said, it's, it says right here in the Old Testament, it's a sin to have tattoos. You know what? I never saw that couple again in my church. Gone. They were making progress. They had gotten to the point we had started taking some of the jewelry out of his face and, and, uh, and his mom said, what are you doing? He said, I just feel like this doesn't please God. I, don't know what he, I didn't tell him to do that. Nobody told me. God, the Holy Spirit was beginning to speak to him. He's beginning to respond to what God, but then we got this one person who wants to make this big deal out of the Old Testament says you shouldn't have tattoos, have marks on your body. And he was gone. That's not the community that God wants us to be. We all want to come in and conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Obviously, that's very important for us to do, but the Holy Spirit's the agent that gets us there. It just breaks my heart that we have to major in these minors. We have to impose our personal opinions on other people. You ought to look like I think you ought to look. You ought to do what I do. You ought to dress like me. You ought to smell like me. You know, we've got a problem here. In a community, we're going to have a lot of variety. And every one of us have a lot of growing to do. I still have a lot of growing to do. But it's all this rugged individualism. It's all this, my opinion is right and yours is wrong. And everybody marches to my drum is okay if you don't. Paul looked at these thousands of Jews, Messianic Jews, didn't agree with one of them on the issue. But he said, right now is not the time. And he went through this ceremony. And they took down their offense and accepted him. And then whenever he was seized by the unconverted Jews in Jerusalem who hated him because he was a converted Jew and because he was leading people out of Judaism and they seized him and they began to beat him. He had thousands in his corner because he wasn't going to go to battle over these petty little things right now. 
They saw Paul enter this Jewish temple. Here's what the problem was. They saw him enter the Jewish temple. And they saw that Paul's Gentile co-worker, Trophimus, was an Ephesian, was traveling with him. So they put A and B together and they created a false rumor. Here's Paul. Here's his Gentile co-worker. I saw Paul in the temple. I bet his co-worker was with him. A Gentile went into the inner courts. Now the, gen the Gentiles could go into the outer courts. But they were forbidden to go into the inner courts. As a matter of fact, there, was, there were signs that were put up there. Warning people that Gentiles could not pass into the inner court. Except on the penalty of death for doing so. And the Romans turned a blind eye to it and said, we'll let the Jews make that rule and we'll let the Jews enforce that rule. So the Jews were prepared to on the spot slay any Gentile who entered in to the inner court. Well, word got around. The rumor was started. Paul was seen in the inner court. They assumed that Trophimus, the Gentile Ephesian, was with him. They started the rumor, and as the rumor spread through town, the Bible says the entire town. Now, that's a hyperbole. They're speaking with some, some exaggeration there. It wasn't everybody in Jerusalem, but what it means is you cannot believe how fast that rumor flew, and you cannot believe how many people came running when they heard somebody let a Gentile into the inner court of the temple, it was the utmost blasphemy for a Gentile to be in there. And the Jews were irate at the rumor, and they came running, and they got Paul, and they began to beat him, and they would have killed him had it not been for the Roman soldiers wading in and saying, what in the world is going on here? And as they waded into the crowd and got down to the source of this, and they found Paul, they were able to rescue him from the mob. They would have killed Paul right there if it hadn't been for the Roman soldiers. Now, I can't go much farther with this story. I've got to bring it to an end, which is kind of an abrupt end. But there's more to this that goes on in the next segment of the Scripture. But I want to bring it down to a close with this. And that is one of the challenges we have in the church today is knowing how to pick our battles. The enemy's trying to divide us in every way possible. Remaining united is tricky because there really are some issues that really can't just be swept under the rug. We can't. They're moral issues. But there are other issues that are too insignificant to split us. And if we choose to major in minors, we're wasting our time and putting the church at risk. Right at the moment, the important thing was is we've got to be together. We have to stay united. Now, moral compromise is never appropriate. You know me, and you know that's a fact. We take a stance on moral issues, and sometimes that stance on moral issues has split churches. 
But methods and personal preferences are not matters that should split a church congregation. And in the 13 years I've been here, my mind reflects back on the number of people that I, I know why in individual cases they left. I think of individuals that they came and told me, I've got a problem with your worship team being up there in jeans and they left the church. I think of the people who came, I've got a problem that you took the hymnals out from the pews and they left the church. I think back, they walked into our, after we built these two rooms back here and took out the last few rows of pews, they came in, their, their pew was gone because their pew was way back there. I'd have binoculars to see them. Where's my pew? It's been taken out. They were gone. And I, I just go down through the list. And it's not just this church. It, it, it's just a common problem. People come in, they don't see things like they like it, and they're gone. I don't know how you explain that to God when you stand before him. You people are the ones that those things don't matter. It just doesn't matter. We've got bigger concerns and that is, there's a world out there that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And they hate God, and they hate the Bible, and they hate church, and they don't know why. They've just been told they have to. And we are bound together by our faith in Christ and our belief that church is important. And I want us to stay united. And I don't know who else God is going to allow to walk through those doors back there, but I hope and pray that we continue to have people that come that are not majoring in minors and not nitpicking, but they understand this is a community. And we've got to find our commonality in Jesus Christ so we can stay united.